Hi everyone and welcome to Play Crush. It's Joe Murphy here. Our guest this week is one of my favourite actors and human beings, the incomparable Brona Gallagher. Brona started her extraordinary career collaborating with Michael Winterbottom on the small screen in his two dramas, Flash McVeigh for the BBC and Island of Strangers for Thames TV. Brona then broke through onto the big screen in her unforgettable performance as Bernie in Alan Parker's The Commitments. Brona has gone on to work with other film luminaries, such as Quentin Tarantino in Pulp Fiction, Stephen Frears in Mary Riley, George Lucas in Star Wars, The Phantom Menace. Recent film credits include The Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society, Tristan and Isolde, Middletown, Faint Heart, Last Chance Harvey, The Big I Am, Malice in Wonderland, Sherlock Holmes, Tamara Drew, Albert Nobbs, Grabbers, and most recently, Armando Iannucci's The Personal History of David Copperfield. She's most recently on TV been in Brassic series one and two for Sky and Julian Fellows' new period drama Belgravia for ITV. Other recent TV work includes Genius Picasso, Count Arthur Strong, You, Me and the Apocalypse, Moon Bay, The Vatican, directed by Ridley Scott, Shameless and Holy Cross, for which she won Best Actress at the Beeritz International Festival 2004. Other credits include Poirot, The Peter Serafinowicz Show, the BAFTA award-winning series The Street, The Accused, Helen's Story, Field of Blood, Pramface, The Life and The Adventures of Nicholas Nickleby, all for BBC. On stage, Broner has worked at the Abbey Theatre in Dublin, the Royal Court in London, and extensively with Simon McBurney for Theatre Complicité. Broner also appeared at the National Theatre London in the revival of the critically acclaimed War Horse, directed by Marianne Elliott, and in Tom Stoppard's Every Good Boy Deserves Favour, directed by Tom Morris and Felix Barrett. Most recently, Broner starred as Mrs Berg in Conor McPherson's Girl from the North Country at the Old Vic and then the Noel Coward Theatre. Brona is a phenomenal talent and a wonderful, funny and refreshingly open person. So it was a complete joy to get the chance to chat about life and theatre and everything else in between with her. Brona's play crush was August Osage County by Tracy Letts. August Osage County is a towering achievement of the American well-made play. It was the recipient of the 2008 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. The play premiered at the Steppenwolf Theatre in Chicago on June 28, 2007, and its Broadway debut was at the Imperial Theatre on the December 4, 2007, and then the production transferred to the Music Box Theatre on April 29, 2008. When their patriarch vanishes, the Weston family must return to the three-storey family home in rural Kansas to care for their afflicted mother. With rich insight and brilliant humour, Let's paints a vivid portrait of a family faced with a troubled past and an uncertain future. It's absolutely wonderful to listen to Broner pull this play apart and express what it means to her so personally. So I hope you all enjoy. Thanks so much for tuning in. And here, without further ado, is Broner Gallagher. With my play crush, August Osage County by Tracy Letts. Hi, Brona. How's it going? I'm very well, Joe. How are you? Yes, not bad, thanks. Not bad. Enjoying the weather's getting a little bit better um, here. So um, that's, that's made me more happy than being stuck indoors behind sheets of pouring rain. Yes, and um, the, sun, the sun is coming out more and more and the evenings are longer, which I think always oh my God, yeah. gives us a bit of an exhale. Yep, it's very nice. Absolutely. 
I'm not looking forward to the fact I'm about to lose an hour of sleep at the weekend, but, you know, I'll do it for longer evenings, for sure. Get sure. into the bed earlier, Joe. That's what Coco Chanel used to say. <laughs> you need it for the beauty sleep. An hour in the bed is worth a fortune in the in the selfridges. That's what I always say. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm upset you think I need beauty sleep, but okay. No, no, no. that's fine. That's fine. You'll feel better. <laughs> yeah. You'll look better and, and you'll, you'll feel better, Joe. Yeah, I mean, God, I need to. So yeah, it's a good idea. I'll, t- I'll, I'll take that prescription. No problem. Um, and you're back in Ireland now, is that right? You're sort of I'm back in back the home country. In, yes, I'm back in Dublin. I've just been um, in Manchester for the last sort of five months on and off. Got a little break uh, at Christmas. I was over there doing uh, a comedy series for Sky, Brassic 3, um, which was kind of a miracle really to be working during um covid and um you know we didn't take a day for granted as regards the the community that we had there and the paramedics testing us twice a week and you know it was a it was kind of a a very um a very welcome blessed kind of experience to be honest Joe because um otherwise we all know um the isolation and the sort of monotony is what's really really challenging people and then obviously um just trying to stay healthy and keep everybody safe so uh yeah it was a great experience i mean that's amazing five months so you sort of really work through the second big lockdown i suppose yes um, did, I mean, yeah what, yeah uh, i mean i came back that, christmas what was it like on the inside well you know they were looked after us very well um i mean the first few months I found that very challenging because I was just in an apartment on my own in Manchester. And, you know, you're you're saying all those things, so lucky to be working, so lucky to be working during this. But I think for a lot of people, you know, the you know, the the, the term of the of the last few years that we all are using a lot uh more frequently, the the mental health side of things. Um and mm. thankfully people are, are much more um confident and capable of talking about it. But the isolation was what was really challenging because you're terrified of becoming in contact with COVID or being the person that stops the shit, which it did um, on two occasions. Uh, we downed tools because somebody was positive and, and tragically we actually lost someone during the, the second um, second unit's uh, wow. shit. We lost a lovely unit driver, yeah. And um, so, you know, the reality is, is, is obviously very real um when that happened so mm. being on your own was was tough so i think the second time around we ended up um we were a lot more sort of prepared for what was in store you know you get up you go to work you get your test you, if you're clear that day you go on to work the next day then you go home and you know what was expected of you from the production was to stay inside your room essential shops that was it and just stay safe which is what we just mm. learned to do you know so you know it was tough but as i say you know I didn't take it for granted for a second that that um that I was I was bloody lucky to be there working, you know. So where did this like start for you, Brona? Like this, obviously, you're kind of filming Brassic for Sky, you know, just you know, refreshing myself on your credits and CV before we started the podcast. It's an extraordinary journey and an absolutely incredible career that's just kind of jam packed with highlights. That in anyone else's career, just one of them would be a highlight, but you're sort of they're just scattered across across your cv where did that start like how did you get into this what what is this career been about for you and 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 where did it start and where's it taken you 
It started in my primary school, I'd say, and, you know, I was about five, I think, and I was doing um, the junior um, Christmas, maybe it was a Christmas show, I'm not really sure if it was a Christmas show, but the local, you know, school that we were all at, my sister Louise and my brother Paul and I, and there was a great love and a great community of, of music and singing and arts in Derry, where I'm from. And people found great comfort in music and arts and um, classical music and show bands as well. So I think I just came from from a family that loved music and, and my grandfather loved music and sort of amateur dramatics. When he was growing up in Derry, he would have been involved in that. And, the, you know, I remember a very vivid moment when we were doing the school play. I was about five. I was the gingerbread queen. I was in my sister's first <laughs> communion dress and a homemade crown. My mother made all the gingerbread costumes. I was kind of gutted because I wanted to be the the toy soldier boy who had the red patent shoes and the red hat and the blue trousers and the black coat with the gold buttons. That was the co- that was the luck. But I was in my sister's first communion dress singing one day in the palace of the queen, the chef did a marvelous thing. Right? I remember the song. And my friend was the gingerbread boy. My mother made all the costumes for the first communion dress. And I remember standing on the stage and I had to sing my song. And I remember going, this is amazing. Everyone's looking at me. Everyone's looking at me. Oh, I could get used to this. So I had about a five-year-old Gloria Swanson moment. And then, boom, that was that. You know what I mean? So, like, that to me has never dissipated. That moment of magic. It was like a gas, you know, Bonson burner that will never go out until I'm six feet under. You know, it was magic. It was just pure magic. And that moment has never left me of theatre and going into the theatre, watching theatre, watching great theatre, um, which I've been lucky enough to watch a lot of, you know, and thank you for everybody that have worked with, been part of, you know, some beautiful, magical productions. So it started there. And from that, that was my sort of, you know, chase the carrot then until I was about 15. <laughs> and when it came to actually the crunch, which was actually knuckling down and doing some proper academia, um, <laughs> which I never really gave much thought to. Um, I was always on the music and arts and drawing and singing and whatever. But come around 15, 16, after being involved in a lot of the local dance stuff in Derry and the Fish and Tony O'Donnell and Susan McMillan, these wonderful local drama and um, dance teachers that I was involved in the shows. I auditioned for about six drama schools in England and I didn't get into any. And so from that no. moment... Yeah, I didn't get into any. I don't believe that. I did. I they're, all, they're all crying now, Joe. <laughs> yeah. I hope we're all listening. What a waste. Yes, I hope you... You're going yes, to back me on the wall. The wall. What? Yes, yes. Come back, go back. And, yes, yes. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? I don't, you know, in, fair, in fairness, I don't think they can understand me. Um, <laughs> I really don't. Um, when I think back now and listen to my accent, I mean, obviously, my accent's not changed a whole lot, but, you know, I just don't think they really thought no one's going to understand that child. So, anyway, didn't get on. Everybody's journey's different. That's the way I look at it. But uh, I do say that. <laughs> I do say that loudly and proudly in a lot of the British theatres that I have worked in. Um, I do say that. Yeah, dying out in that now, actually. Um, 
So, and I mean, but at uh, the time, did it like hurt at the time? Like, did you have this kind of great, kind of bold, robust, philosophical kind of version, or or, or did it sting a bit at the time? Like, how how did how did fifteen, sixteen year old Bruno feel about that? I was devastated, you know, I was. But then, but then, <laughs> didn't take me long. <laughs> didn't take me long, Joe. I moved swiftly along. Um, no, but then I got a place actually in the um, National Youth Theatre. And mm. this gorgeous man, Nick Hedges, gave me a place in the National Youth Theatre. And I was all set to go that summer. Literally, the bag was packed. And I got a call from my friend in Derry, Margot Harkin, who was making a film called Hushabye Baby about teenage pregnancies in Derry City and a character from that. And through Margot, who I babysat for, she told me that a young British director called Michael Winterbottom was coming to Derry and he wanted to meet local Derry girls, Donegal girls and boys to make his first film coming out of drama school, or sorry, film school. So I auditioned for Michael and I got a part. And that was... The summer of 89. And from that, didn't go to the... I was like, no, Michael Winterbottom. I can't do your film. I'm going to the National Youth Theatre London. And he said, well, you know, and I mean, I had nobody back then to sort of speak to about it or ask about stuff or advice, you know. And my mum and dad were kind of thinking, well, you don't know what to do. But luckily, um, Nick Hedges was so brilliant and he sort of acted and gave me the advice that a good agent would. And he said, look, you can come back next year. This is a great opportunity. So why don't you do mm. the movie? So I did the film and I, you know, had a wonderful time on it. We worked in Donegal for a few weeks and it was a beautiful drama, uh, four piece sort of drama for, I think it was like for ITV, educational school programs. Mm. It was a really beautiful wee piece about tribalism and Derry and Donegal and rival kids you know, ganging up on each other and, you know, not understanding kids from different backgrounds. So it was really lovely about, I suppose, to educate kids at school about acceptance and stuff um, of other, you know, different kids. Um, mm. And then I got a part in a film sort of directly after that. I got an agent in Dublin, Dara O'Malley, and then I got a part in a film about the Guildford Four um, and Giuseppe Conlon. And I met the wonderful Barry McGovern and Stella McCusker, and I worked with them. And then I did the uh, another little job with Michael, I think. And then I did the commitments. So you know, I was kind yes, of, the commitments that yeah. that that very little known uh, uh, movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, was that it, from the outside? The commitments looked like a sort of sea change moment, in a way. Uh, is that what it felt like at the time, or is that just what it looks like externally? It did very much. I mean, you know, I was only talking to a lovely young academic recently, Nessa, who's writing a book about the commitments, actually, an Irish film at the time. And, you know, I didn't know this, but just after the commitments, the impact that it had in Ireland, number one, um, Mm. not just obviously opening the floodgates for what we now have as a thriving film industry. And, you know, thankfully, Mm. it's still been able to function during the, the pandemic but after the commitments the irish film board was reinstated because it had gone right so that's right. the impact of commitments that's how big it was obviously and you know there was a few mm. producers got together and went to the irish film board whoever you know the sort of estate of it or whatever was left behind and said you know we need to get this up and running again so you know the commitments was a was a massive meteor in the ireland for so many reasons but definitely mm. for myself it you know triggered um 
you know, an international, I suppose, viewing where people seeing you um, in that environment, working with a master filmmaker like Alan Parker. And, mm. you know, um, but it was an interesting one, Joe, because I went to Hollywood with the whole film. You know, it was a massive game changer. We were kind of, you know, famous in Ireland overnight. But still, I had this love and this passion for theatre. And I felt mm. very underqualified. I felt that I hadn't trained. I don't know why I had this love of dance. I wanted to go to Italia Conti. I wanted to go to, you know, Rada. I wanted to go to Central. You know, I wanted to, I had this romantic ideal that I would train and, and you know, tread the boards, you know. And that to me was a classic. That was the, you know, the Judy Dance, the Maggie Smiths, you know, that's what Laurence Olivier mm. did. You know, that's what, you know, Martha Graham did, you know, trained. And yeah. I had this passion and I just felt when I get that train and then nobody can tell me I'm not good or nobody can tell me I'm mm. not capable. So I think because I was from, you know, um, a very troubled city, but I had incredible parents, I have incredible parents, bless their hearts. And they were so encouraging and they recognized that I had a passion for it and some some sort of ability. And they really were so encouraging and supportive. And, you know, I was so blessed to have that in my school. I had Cora King, Corita Care, teachers in my school, Mrs. Martin, that were so encouraging and recognized that I had some ability and, you know, really helped me understand literature, speak literature in a certain way, work on my voice. So, you know, went to Hollywood, did the commitments PR, did a little bit of moseying around, but I just felt like a sort of, a real, you know, square peg in a round hole. I just felt out of place. I never felt like I was that kind of look that they wanted. I didn't, you know, I suppose when I look back now, I just wasn't confident that it was a place that I was going to thrive in mm. or get work. And I wanted to go to theatre school. Um, and I came mm. back during the promotion and I joined the Abbey Theatre, which was one of my dreams. And I did about two years in the Abbey. And then from the Abbey, uh, went back to LA to visit a friend with another friend and met Tarantino and did a little job in the commitments <laughs> and then from that came back to Ireland no I came back to London and joined um, a co-production with Nina Gawa and the Royal Shakespeare Company I filmed the whole production and met a lifelong friend there Sweet Pea Slight who was a Thelma's assistant and ended up living mm. with Sweet Pea in the most extraordinary house in Westbourne Terrace. And, you know, Sweet Pea's gone on to write her own marvellous, magical book about that time of our lives, Pass Me the Urgent Biscuits, and the book was called. And from that, was surrounded by, you know, theatre lovers. And, you know, Sweet Pea started in the National when she was 19 as an assistant to Thema. And just... You know, they they were my crew in London. They they educated me to what was going on and what was going on. And from that then, um, you know, filming, doing bits and pieces, I ended up joining Complicity. So I met Simon McBurney through my darling agent, Penny Wesson, who was my agent at the time from I was 19 till I was about 32. And Penny says, this is the guy you need to meet. And, you know, to this day, I have never worked with anybody as extraordinary as Simon. And I feel that I got mm. the training, the five years on and off that I worked with Simon and Complicity and Lilo Bauer and Annabelle Arden and all the extraordinary teachers and 
actors that I worked with with them, that was the training that I never got. Hmm. I mean, that is <laughs> so much to unpack there. It's such an incredible, like, bolt of life there. I also mm. love the idea um, that you do the commitments, you work with Tarantino, and your, like, worry is that you want to go to drama school. And I can just imagine every person in drama school going, all I want to do is be in a film like The Commitments and work with Quentin Tarantino. Aye. So that imposter syndrome thing is Aye, that's exactly it's really what... toxic, isn't it? Yep, yep. It very, very much was, and I have you know, looked at those areas in my life. I mean, I remember with the beautiful Jamie Lloyd before um, we did the faith machine in the Royal Court and the night before, the night we were opening, I was up on the Chelsea uh, Kings Road buying, you know, booze and whatever, flowers and chocolates for everybody in the night. And I met Jamie in the in the aisle in M&S on the Kings Road and he was like, so how are you feeling being you know, open at night? And I started to cry and I was like, I'm going to let everybody down. I'm terrible. I, I don't know. What I'm, you know, utter imposter said, utter lack of confidence, you know, which is a really interesting thing that I've really looked at in the last few years. I'm just like, well, you know, you only have one shot at it. So yeah, recognize that as we all do, you know, but I think if this pandemic experience hasn't taught us all that it ain't no dress rehearsal and you're allowed to feel mm. insecure, you're allowed to feel that you're not qualified, but I mean, you know, it's not going to do you any good. So do a wee bit of work on it and embrace the moment and be confident and practice self-confidence and lack of worth and lack of self-esteem in all areas of your life, you know? So it's been mm. a very interesting um, journey. And I do look back and I just think, God, you know, but regardless of all those feelings, I just got in there and got stuck in and did it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think that's so important. Yeah. to also recognize probably that everybody else is feeling like that i think we sometimes have this myth that you're the only one who feels insecure scared and everyone else is nailing it mm. and actually i think you know as, as i grow older i'm like oh man everyone's just faking it till you make it so making it it's, you make it's it all okay everyone's doing it yeah i mean i remember this beautiful actor i worked with in the abbey and i was only young you know i was 19 or whatever and i remember one night we were doing a show and i remember he bless his heart, he had what was called to me, I'd never heard it before, he had stage fright. And I remember mm. going, oh, what are they going to do? And he says, oh, his, his understudy will go on, you know, or whoever it was, was was covering him. And I remember kind of going, coming home and thinking he had stage fright. You know, what is that? You know, like, we need to get the fire brigade. You know, what is a stage fright? <laughs> you know, really, like, so young and totally, you know, ignorant of what it was and you know and look back now and the poor man he had just lost his wife a few months before do you know what you know pretty pretty recent mm. he lost his wife and obviously somebody thought this is a good idea to get him into the the, the theater and get him up on the stage and get his confidence back but of course there was such a delayed sense of grief and it wasn't processed and mm. you know we live in a country, mm. um, you know, I'll only speak for my own country here, but we live in a country where there's mammoth grief and mammoth trauma mm. and a lot of very, you know, dysfunctional setups. And we only know at the stage where people are talking about mental health, grief, dealing with grief, dealing with addiction, dealing with, you know, the, the legacy and the horrors that the, that the, all of, of our history politically has left behind and currently mm. and the church, what that has left behind and currently incapable of owning up to what they've, 
what they've done and the horrors that they've caused in this country. So I live in a country where I'm very conscious of that. So, you know, in, in those days, and only now I can see a change 30 years later, there was no grief counselling. There was no counselling for people to go to, to help, you know. And I realise now what that is, all those moments in life where you think, I'm lost, I'm lost, I'm lost. Now we have a language that people are hopefully coherent of they have a capability and an understanding and an empathy and an openness they want to understand it and that is delayed grief or lack of confidence maybe coming from a place that you were a second-class citizen and that was very much my case growing up in Derry I was a Catholic from the bog side I went to a particular school I was not academic I was not from a wealthy part of the city my parents were an engineer and a hairdresser so the idea of me going to drama school don't be silly but what I had was mm -hmm. I had an incredible encouragement from my parents and my school and my teachers. And what I did was I earned their confidence and their respect through public speaking and challenging, not even aware that I was, but we challenged the so-called ruling class that didn't believe that the Catholics were of equal status to them. And my class were very good at at public speaking and they were very academic years and when the right head mistress came into our school she encouraged us to go to get uh, our a-levels and our o-levels and to get to university which there was a flurry of my girlfriends did so it's mm. about confidence life's about confidence definitely and, and 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 how much damaging i suppose is that the systems that rob you of that at such a young age before you've even had a chance to kind of figure any of that out absolutely you know and blackmail you know um brainwashing sorry i use the term brainwashing you know like that you know the fear the state fear in collusion with government fear you know all the fear that it was that was you know projected onto people and brainwashed blackmailed and abusive utterly abusive it was definitely there but my parents weren't mm. religious in a sense you know my father respected the church um because it was a place for people to go for comfort and support um but there were no dozers about the uh what you know catholicism is very different to actually um people that put themselves in a place of power and acted godlike so yeah we were in a way raw but you mm. know you have to overcome those things and move on and that's what i chose to do yeah definitely and is that what is that I mean what advice would you give to the other Broners out there now who I suppose are 15 16 who are who are feeling that way is it just get stuck in and do what you want ignoring what everyone else is saying and that you you do have a right to be there is is that the advice Well you know I do actually believe thankfully that young people have a lot more confidence now and mm. The idea of becoming a success is not something that kids don't relate to anymore. There's more and more and more of of um of us able to access, you know, the wonderful things that we see on, you know, the 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 great sides of social media and the positive sides where people can become, you know, successful just through doing what they do on their Instagrams, or whatever. But you know, believe in yourself and. Do not let other people's criticism deter you. That is their projection. That is their, um, that's their own stuff. They need to work out. And 
you know, find positive people. All you need is one positive person that's going to encourage you and see your talent and give you the advice and, you know, steer you in that, in that direction. So, you know, children are so porous and young people and, you know, you can have your dreams obviously crushed by the wrong people and the negative people, even if they're people in your own family, which I didn't have, but I can certainly see friends that did, that did, um, but you know, don't waste your time thinking that you're not good enough. Get out there and see um, if you are and mm-hmm. learn and listen and embrace it and study your work and be prepared for your auditions and learn your lines and look after yourself and become the best version of yourself that you are. Be Just be the best version of yourself that you can be, you know. Mm, I love that. I love that idea of just focusing on what you, what you can do, yeah. but also the idea that you don't have to take a criticism to heart. That can be about the person making the criticism, nothing to do with you. A hundred percent. hundred percent. I mean, I did a lovely chat. Um, I had to do a talk there about two years ago with friends of mine in Derry who are all social workers. And they work with the most extraordinary group of young people who have all come through the care system. And a friend of mine, Bruna, also is called, and um, Bruna's um, asked me to become involved. And it was this, it was, it was an organization um that they had created themselves as social workers within the care system to award young people, you know, like a certificate of achievement. And these are kids coming from the most horrific backgrounds. And a lot of them growing up looking after then their own little siblings, you know, once they get to the age that they can mm. you know, legally look after them. So, you know, you'd have 16 year olds rearing their 10 year old brothers or sisters because they didn't want them to go under the care system. So, you know, as tough as it gets basically and you know from very dysfunctional uh, abusive backgrounds and I was up on the stage and you know they, they asked me to come and make a speech to the kids as somebody and they they seen in their eyes in the study as a you know a person of inspiration or whatever which I always kind of go really but okay let's do this um <laughs> I'm up on the stage and, and and you know my friends you know you can prepare a speech and I thought you know what there's nothing I'm going to prepare until I hear what these kids have to say because I, I'm not going to talk at them or down to them because I can't I can't begin to understand what their upbringing has been like and I'm not going to be patronizing or condescending. I'm just going to listen, which is an art I believe we all need to study and give a lot more time to in our lives. Just listen to what people have to say. So I listened to them all, seen them all, you know, I mean, it was incredibly moving experience to see these kids, what they've achieved, you know, and some of them have their, you know, some coming with academic achievements, some coming with training as engineers, as hairdressers, as beauty therapists and sports therapists and, you know, incredible achievements. And I just stood on the stage and I was chatting and sang a song with my cousin and I just spoke directly from my heart and I don't know how I kind of got away with it, but I did, not that I got away with it, but I just, I was deeply honest and I just looked at them and I just thought in everybody's chest, if you visualize you have a wee light bulb and no matter how much abuse or how much toxic language people use and they're covering that up say symbolically like it's mud going on top of your light bulb on top of your light bulb caking that light bulb in mud and that nobody else has any idea that your little light bulb is glowing away under your heart no matter what anybody says do you you remember that that wee bulb is always there and it's always glowing Mm -hmm. and the amount of the 
kids that went to the social workers that day and for like a year afterwards we were meant to do something last year just as lockdown happened they all said that's the thing that kept me going mm-hmm. you know and that's what I would say to anybody and that's what I do myself if I've had moments where I just think oh god I didn't do that you know I couldn't do that I'm not good enough. That, that that to me is a lovely visualization to do you know mm. yeah definitely uh, that, that idea that people can cover up your light but they can't dim it they can't know, dim like it that's a really no. powerful message no. yeah because you know in this business alone you know that, to me it's a symbolism and a little message for life because you know in this game that we're in it's such a competitive difficult game and it's such a a wonderful life as well a life of the actor the entertainer but it is synonymous with rejection and sometimes struggle and poverty <laughs> do you know and you know when you see people up there getting awards and you see people up there getting their their you know recognition or whatever whatever that means to me awards don't mean anything but the symbolism of an award to me it's much deeper than that to me awards are the moment that someone is acknowledged for keeping going they kept going you know <laughs> that success just keep going because everybody has a story no matter who you are no matter how famous or magic or wonderful or rich or beautiful or powerful everybody has a story now don't get me wrong some people's journey is just one big you know rainbow some people's is an absolute you know crocodile swamp so you know and you know you just gotta keep going and that's the key but you know take it standing up and you know just keep on trucking because that's that's the that's the key you know no matter what that's what makes us the actors and the performers that we are and the and the interesting people don't become you know don't let anything you know knock you off your off your your pedestal or off your your stool keep on going you know the journey is in 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 the learning and how you take it you know don't don't let it um what's the word you know don't don't let it basically uh define who you are you define Mm. who you are you know yeah definitely and have you because i mean it's it's amazing and sort of spine tingling when you describe it like that and it feels really kind of calming and inspirational in the same place but it feels like maybe that knowledge or viewpoint you've got there is hard won have have there been those times where you you, you, that's been challenged or you've found it difficult 100% (laughs) I mean, we laughed so much in Brassic because I, I was, you know, I, you know, a good wee bit older than most of the actors. And then I just kept saying, 30 years in the business, darling, 30 years in the business. <laughs> you know? And, you know, I'm doing it 30 years, you know, and I've learned a lot. And there's been moments where, you know, I was really down on me. Um, luck we work and skint and not, you know, consistently getting knocked off my pedestal um, and thinking that you've got something in the bag and then boom, you don't. And, you know, really looking forward to productions and then them not being what you thought they would be and finding out that the person's not to the person you thought they were or whatever, you know, mm. but you know, you just got to take it on the chin and get up and keep going because you want to do what you do, you know, and, and be human. And my brother always said a brilliant thing, you know, acknowledge your disappointment. Mm. And it's such a brilliant thing to do because it's then not going to be pocketed somewhere where I haven't dealt with the grief of it, you know, but I, I've been there in, in experiences and walked up red carpets and went, wasn't always like this, wasn't like this two years ago, you know, so I don't take mm-hmm. it for granted. And, 
you know, I've been in a place where, you know, I've had to leave me home and rent it out and go and live somewhere else. Um, they try and, and make ends meet, you know, but I don't take it for granted anymore. And what I do do is I work hard and I give mm -hmm. it the best shot. And I know that jobs that I don't get, I go, well, you can't phone that in, bro. You know, or you didn't really, you weren't rock solid on those lines and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, more times than enough now I'm going, well, I give that my best shot because, you know, that's what you got to do. And you got to respect the people that you're working with, respect the agents. Um, and hopefully if you're happy enough to be with the agents that you want, you know, respect that they know what they're doing as well, you know, big time. Mm. Um, but yeah, you know, I've, I've had all those moments and that's why I get so excited when I see friends that, that I know their personal journey has been really hard and there's been really brutal moments. Um, and, you know, I really do when I see them keeping going and getting up and just doing rock and roll performances. I'm just like, yeah, baby, you know, do it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's own so it. You know, mind yourself. Own it, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like it's interesting because that, that kind of keeping going um that kind of living hard and rising high mm. um feels like that really connects to your play crush you know yeah. um august osage county because i'm like if that's not a play about just keep going through the attrition of life like i don't know like what is right oh i mean where do you start there you know <laughs> i mean i was you know oh, i'm just going to say masterpiece before we start because that's <laughs> okay american yeah. theater as good as it gets and <laughs> you know i was extremely blessed and i do not take one moment for granted that i shared the time that these exquisite actors performed this in the national during um the Warhorse production that we did in 2008 and they were there from the Steppenwolf company, the company, you know, with Tracy Letts in the national, in the Littleton. And we were able to see this play. I seen it three times, you know, so to me, August Osage County is, is one of the most brilliantly transcribed dysfunctional family you know, <laughs> eulogies that there is and you know it it is a play that it is basically about choosing to be the victim creating the cycle again and again and again or making the choice to change mm. the dysfunction that you come from and you know for me Having seen that play, the, the times that we did, it was not just staggering to listen to the writing, but to see the performances from, you know, Diana and Amy Morton, who played Beverly, Barbara, mm -hmm. and the mother, Violet, to see those performances in, you know, that theatre, I, I will never forget it. I will never forget the magic of those actors and they had the most grueling schedule they did not have any time off where we were in repertoire and we did a couple of days off and a couple of days on they were on every day i think they were there for i think they were there for three months mm -hmm. yeah no it, it, it's it's the most extraordinary performance and 
you know, did you, did you bring friends to that show, Joe, that had never been to the theatre before? <laughs> they witnessed yeah. their, you know, friends of mine who were builders from Kilburn, and they sat in that audience and they howled and they cried and they were astonished. <laughs> and the look on their faces watching theatre as good as it gets, to me, it was like us as children watching theatre. You know, it's 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 something you never can recreate because films are always there. Obviously, we can put them on. But now I realise when I've seen those great performances and people speak to me about performances from Complicity that I was extremely lucky to be involved in or War Horse as well or mm-hmm. Garrett from the North Country, you know, that that it's it's something that it's in the air, you know, it's, it's forever in the ether, those magic performances, you know. Um, yeah. It, it was a masterpiece. Yeah, that um, I suppose the transitory nature of them is what makes them special, right? Like you yeah. have to have been there, otherwise yeah. that thing won't exist anymore. Yeah. And I agree. I think this play is a total masterpiece, and I find it really interesting that it's it's for you. It's about cycles, yeah. Um, and whether you're consumed by them or break them, which I think is a kind of really beautiful way of looking at the play. And did that when you saw it? Is it just you know that you sort of are viewing this? as you say, masterpiece, consummate skill, incredible performance skill, or was it resonating with you in your own life? Did it resonate with some choices that you wanted to make or hadn't made? Or was it more like from a distance, just the sort of sheer kind of skill and brilliance of it bowled you over? I think both. I think that the choice at the end that Barbara makes, you know, and again, I'll never not rave about Amy's performance in that show and obviously created the role with Tracy Letts in Steppenwolf. As they say in Ireland, um, the the she was a weapon, which I always think is such a brilliant way to describe uh, Violet Weston, the character played so <laughs> impeccably by Diana Donegan. I think Diana was, I think she was in her early 80s at the time. Um, I mean, or performance, like they were doing, you know, this is a three hour show, like a two and a half, three hour show. This lady was giving this performance twice a day, some days, and you were sitting in the Whoa. audience going, I'm exhausted doing War Horse, and I'm getting chunks of breaks in between. You know, <laughs> the, these actors didn't, these actors didn't leave the stage. So, you know, the genius of this um, production, you had this incredible set of this beautiful, you know, midwestern american house so from the top Mm. down you know there was beautiful kind of sepia lights in each kind of window so this the whole stage was filled with this house like a doll's house and Mm. you know you had the beautiful native american actress in the attic almost like the sort of to me like the sort of spiritual um the brain the consciousness of america sitting at the top of the house and she's Mm. a character of utter peace just utter peace throughout the play, the play, dignified, clear, coherent. And, you know, there's so many brilliant Tracy Letts quotes in in amongst um, the player. He's basically saying, you know, America, you know, it's, it's a shit show. It's over, you know, and talks about the <laughs> genocide and talks about all the, you know, the horrific things that have happened in order to, you know, create what the America that we, that we know now um, I just found the quote there earlier. It's so brilliant. Um, this country, this is uh, Barbara saying this at the end, this country, this experiment, America, this hubri, what a lament. If no one saw it go, here today, gone tomorrow, dissipation is actually much worse than cataclysm. <laughs> so when you see this woman 
who's obviously got a prescription drug, very serious prescription drug drug habit, mm. which obviously is a massive problem in America. And mm. having spent a wee bit of time there, I didn't know, you know, really what um, Vicodin was and all these prescription drugs that people are addicted to now. But it have, is obviously, you know, epidemic kind of, per, you know, um, mm. scale at the minute. And, you know, the, the, the drug pharmaceutical companies, you know, so, so this woman is addicted to these pills and the dysfunction and the pain that she's caused throughout her life um, and all her pains and all her wounds of her life, her dysfunction, she never chose to really, really look at it. She wasn't able to deal with it. So you've got mm. these incredible storylines going on throughout it, dysfunction, addiction, you know, basically, you know, genocide, colonization, all these huge, huge subjects that Tracy lets flooding through this play in this incredible set that you walk in, you think, oh, this is going to be good, you know, and then he just starts throwing the punches and the audience are getting the punch after the punch. It's like you sit there like a little plum in the audience and by the time you come out, someone's just stood on your head. That's what it felt like. But, but you know, the clarity that he delivers these stories that everybody in that audience could at some point relate to and, you know, choosing whether to repeat the cycle of addiction, to repeat the cycle of abuse, of dysfunction, you know, all the strange relationships that go on in between, but also the hilarity and the utter mm. genius of the humour and the punchlines that are coming, you know, just when you need it, just when you can't take any more. I mean, you're sick. You're sick in that audience looking at that family when the, when the kitchen, when the, when the after the funeral, that they all sit around and have mm. a meal. I mean, it's just, you can't believe how vitriolic and how much of a weapon, you know, the, the mother mm. is. And then there's just lines where you're on the floor laughing, you know. So it's just, <laughs> it's extraordinary that it can just, you know, roll it all into one ball and uh, just throw it in your head, you know. Yeah, definitely. And I think it was really interesting because I saw that, I saw the production at the National as well. And right. you really get this sense that they also kind of never stood a chance. I think yeah. when you see the Native um, American woman, um, you see that house that somehow feels toxic and, and, and yeah. cancerous in itself, whilst yeah. also being kind of beautiful and colonial. And it's just so weird, all the yeah. contradictions that are in the house. You just think like these these poor people, they just, no one ever stood a chance. Like the the world the american system the, that initial yeah. genocide that that whole country is built on just yeah. kind of swallowed these people whole right and you're just watching them try and fight their way out of it um and when i remember when ivy left ivy obviously is the daughter who sort of yeah. thinks she's in a relationship with her cousin but ends up being in a relationship with her, her half brother yeah. like but still the the empowered choice to leave and do it anyway it was so interesting to get me to a point where I was like, emotionally, I was like, yes, I think you should go and have that relationship with your half brother. Like what a weird place to be in emotionally. But I was like, I genuinely think that's the best thing for everybody. Um, so I don't, I just thought that emotional complexity where it gets you to and who you're siding with and who you're empathetic with is, is a kind of mark of genius. And I feel like the Americans are better than anyone. This idea of like the family unit as country, like as a representation of the whole country. Yeah. I feel yep. like Tracy, let's just nailed that. 
100%. There's no stone left unturned, you know. And that's so true. I mean, I think for Ivy and her relationship with little Charlie, it, it was the only comfort in life she had. Mm-hmm. And it it was not going to do her any, uh, you know, any joy of any form could be found living under the roof with such a toxic, abusive victim of a mother. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, whether or not she did go to New York and stayed there with him, you know, whether or not it became a fully fledged relationship, like, you know, they all warned her against. And obviously, you know, all the brutal stuff that she talks about, the, the, the hysterectomy and the, that she had cervical cancer, you know, yeah. was any of that true? I often wonder, just so she knew that, you know, she wouldn't, if they were cousins, you know, um, mm. she wouldn't be having a child with her cousin and, you know, so yeah, I mean, you know, what, what's, what's worse to run away and find comfort with somebody, um, or stay in a house and die slowly. So, mm. you know, I mean, it was, um, it was, it was an extraordinary, uh, setting. And I think the fact that, that life couldn't survive, they're not even tropical birds, you know, um, yeah. the great story at the start with the parakeets and, they basically say even the wee birds died there that you know the tropical but just just how unhealthy toxic environments are for people mm. um obviously and nothing will grow and you'll just either become in the cycle or you'll become estranged from from your family um and i think when when beverly who you really do love um by the end of the um or sorry barbara who you really do love by the end of the um play i do anyway uh mm. You know, you just want her to be happy and obviously her husband's left and he's left for a younger woman and mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that the mother's saying is true, unfortunately. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and that you know, that we do understand maybe a bit more men and women now and what makes us tick and midlife crisis and that men maybe do have a menopause as well, you know, different to mm-hmm, you know, what mm-hmm. we experience as women. But um you really want her to survive. You know, she's kinda like the American dream. You want her to survive. Um, you want her to get help and get out, and she does. She leaves, you know. Once she realizes mm. how, how just, you know, what a nasty piece of work her mother is, and that maybe the father's suicide could have been prevent, you know, prevented. Yeah. She just gets up and goes, and it's it's a great moment of of liberty, you know. Um, it is. I mean, there's that there's that killer line. I think isn't there earlier where she says, um, "It well, I didn't. I wasn't the one that told you, Ivy. It was Mum." And Ivy says, "There's no difference. There's no difference. Yeah. Oh, oh my." God. You're just like, oh God, you're like, and then you're just sort of begging for Barbara to get out of it, aren't you? You're just like, please don't let this consume you. Um, but it, it strikes me that it, it does fall back to what we were just talking about before in terms of the idea of of your light bulb, right? Inside each of those characters yep. and how smothered yep. it can get. Yep. And um, I, I feel particularly for Ivy, but all of them really are accepting the criticisms that everyone else is giving them as truth. Um, mm. and in a way so the journey of the play in a way feels to me exactly as you articulating earlier which is to go you don't have to accept those criticisms They that's probably about the person doing the criticising oh it always is sorry. I think it always is I think it's just having the skill the education the help and the knowledge to know that um, you know that's projection and mm you know, what other people think of you, all the classic lines that we know, what other people think of you is none of uh, your business. So, yeah, yeah. you know, and the judgment is, you know, judgment is other people's ego. 
you know, the ego is the image one has of oneself. All the great lines that I love reading when I read things about, you know, you know, the brain and spirituality and the ego, the human ego, when you read the great, you know, the great work of the people that wrote mm. about the egos, you know, that's other people's opinions and other people's image of you. And, you know, you know, the, the hardest thing a human being can do is look at themselves and their behavior mm. and their yeah. toxicity intake, um, their, you know, projection on onto other people and, you know, how deep, how deep insecure, uh, how, how deeply insecurity can run in somebody. And a lot of the time, mm. deep, deep insecurity in a human being causes such enormous pain in others because mm. that person actually has no self-worth and therefore they're, they're be damned if they're going to let somebody else feel worthy. Mm. You know? So it's a huge study of psychology, obviously of human behavior, huge study of that. And, you know, the great line at the beginning when they're heading into the, the, um, the house the mother and daughter are talking and you know you do see great hope for for barbara and her, and her daughter jean and she really wants to help her but you know barbara's experiencing her husband leaving her having an affair with a younger woman and she mm. says to the daughter thank god we can't tell the future we'd never get out of bed yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know you just think ain't that the truth girl you know yeah. <laughs> so, you know there's all those wonderful lines you know it's just it's just brilliant and i mean the darkness of families and the inner truths and the incest the the children, you know, wedded, yeah. you know, the, the the children born under, you know, out of wedlock, you know, your brothers, your cousin, your mother's, your sister, you know, all this kind of yeah, stuff, you yeah, know, yeah. really a lot of us, you know, we never discussed, but we all know there's that it's a lot closer <laughs> sometimes than you, than you want, you know, but that's it's human behavior. It's ugly, you know, yeah. it's wonderful and it's beautiful and it's fabulous, but you know, you know, we're extraordinary creatures and, you know, capable of extraordinary beauty and, and great art and great music and extraordinary literature that lasts for hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, people that can write about human behavior that we're still performing when we get back to, you know, hundreds of years later, these plays are still being performed, you mm. know, and this play to me is, is one of those, uh, one of those testaments to the great study of human behavior. Yeah, I think that's right. And, it, and exactly as you just said there, I think that it, it's not just about learning that you don't have to accept other people's criticism of you. And, and I suppose that's Ivy's journey is mm. her going, oh, yeah, I don't have to be the version of me these people want me to be. But also, yeah. I suppose for Barbara, it's about exactly as you said, realizing the damage you're causing. Yeah. By not having your own shit together, like what yeah. that's doing to the people yeah. around you. Yeah. Awareness. And how that crushes them. Yeah. Awareness. You know, awareness is, is um, it's the, all these words, you know, that are very hip at the moment, you know, mental health, awareness, mindfulness, you know, all these words that people are using, which is great to hear. And, you know, kids are doing meditation at school and kids are doing mindfulness. And I'm seeing these hilarious videos of my friends, kids meditating at play school and stuff like this, you know, but like, that's the way it should be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you are aware of how you speak to people, when you're aware of your lack of awareness, when you actually have the respect and the patience and the decency to ask somebody, how are you? Mm. How are you? When you've got the time out of your own day not to be so self-possessed and obsessed and self-concerned with your day that you actually might be able to stop and ask somebody. How are you getting on? 
you know, and that's what we hopefully have had in the last year, revolution of mindfulness and all these words that we're using. It's basically respect. Mm. It's human respect for other people. And when you respect other people, and even if they're a bit different, and you've got the intelligence or you achieve the intelligence, the emotional intelligence, because you care and you want to care about other people, about the difference, about the color of somebody's skin or the what the what outfit they're wearing that's different to yours, or the fact that somebody speaks a different language or maybe can't speak or has a disability of some sort. When you have that, then that's respect. Mm-hmm. And the problem with the planet is that we don't have enough of it. Mm. because everything's about human beings joe it's not about cities are depressed or oh, that city's very depressed or that place is very depressed it's not about the place it's about the people in the place mm-hmm. because people make the place mm-hmm. people leave the energy behind people talk about houses i walked into that house there was a bad vibe well you know what it really is is energy you know mm-hmm. and the reason why we're floating about this big ball you know, controlled by the sun and the moon and the, and the whole of, you know, the world's magic that it is, you know, it's because, you know, we, we are guests here and it's about respect and we need to get back to what the Native Americans talked about and that was worshipping the sun and worshipping the moon and worshipping actually what's keeping us all here because all there is is just human beings' energy and that's why we're here, mm-hmm. you know? So I think if we can come out of this pandemic with just a wee bit more respect for people and the fact that this is a whole lot bigger than we all thought it was a year ago, that this is a game changer, this is a paradigm shift in, in human beings. We have a chance now to change things around. It doesn't matter how much money or wealth or power you have, you know, we're all human beings in the same human race, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Um, it's so amazing to you talk so passionately about it. And it, it just completely resonates with the play, I think, because it's, yep. I feel like that's the humanity of the play, right? Is because they talk about like the planes, I think, at some point, yeah. and that the planes yeah. are a spiritual place and obviously the house and all that. But really, you sort of think like, okay, um, Violet and Maddie Faye's fam- uh, uh, parents abuse them. They've yep. gone on to emotionally abuse their kids. They've got it's just yep. what it's just what people will do to each other, right. I suppose, in the name of their own egos and their own insecurities. Yeah. Yep. And I think that's a really beautiful vision of the play that it's sort of saying, have the courage to break out of those cycles. Yeah. Yep. But I suppose also muster the courage to like look in the mirror and be like, and what are you perpetuating? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, you, what damage are you doing? Yeah, because when the coast is clear we can move on but the bottom line is for so many of us we don't own our own behavior Mm. when you own up and you can woman up and you can man up to owning your own behavior then we can talk about it then we can move on Mm. you know but i mean for any country that's that's and these are massive you know social issues that we're still going to you know we're going to talk about until you know we, we we're extinct but you know owning up to actually you know how countries came to be the countries that they are you mm. know and if people in america still want to operate from a place of utter you know utter ignorance and still want to carry a flag um supporting slavery then mm. you know you know we we don't we really don't need those people around 
you know, <laughs> and that's the problem that you know these people have made that choice because they're 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 too afraid to see that life can be different because they, they they're too afraid of their own identity and their nationality, and when you really know the truth, you know. That brilliant Shakespeare line, the woman does protest too much. You know, the lady does protest too much. You know, when mm. people keep protesting about something, they know deep in their heart that they're in the wrong. Mm. But people are terrified to own themselves and own up and, you know, be the person say, right, I messed up here, you know, because identity, you know, what is identity? What does it actually mean? You know what I mean? Mm. You know, who yeah. are you? You know, what it means is you're actually afraid to stand on your own and, you know, being part of a group, a group of hate or a group of, you know, racial abuse or whatever it is you want to talk about, you know, that, that that's when people think they're stronger. They're not. They're actually, you know, although they're doing, they're doing all the damage and they're perpetrating horrific crimes and violence on people. But, you know, to stand on your own and to, to be a strong individual and doesn't matter, you know, whether you believe or not, but being able to stand up on your own is really where the great bravery comes from. And if people want to get under the, 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 that's where we have movement and that's where we have peace. But if people want to still stay in groups full of hate and, you know, all the pain that they're causing and they're not going to, you know, own their own behavior, then we'll never move on, you know, but, mm. but, but a lot of people do. That's why, that's why writers are so important because they stand on their own and they collect what they believe and what they've experienced and what they see and they put it in a very coherent piece of theatre for us that hopefully we can learn from and be comforted by. <laughs> mm, yes, yeah, yeah. And I think that's what's interesting. Uh, as you said earlier about Tracy Letts, is he, he really sweetens the deal with the comedy, right? It, like, oh. you sort of go, oh my God, if I can laugh through it, it'll oh. somehow get me through this. And the other thing I, I find amazing about the play is it sort of suggests that, like, if you do do like if you are confronted with the trauma and the truth and the stuff that like scares the shit out of you about yourself and your family weirdly something better is on the other side like uh, and it's not that the play wraps that up in some sort of sweet bow or anything but i think wow the, the characters are as you say starting to stand on their own two feet for better or for worse uh, and there's something yeah. maybe not optimistic but ultimately hopeful in the play for me because of that is saying like lean into the trauma lean into the fear of you know owning yourself and yeah. actually like a better world lies on the other side of that if you can just grit through it yeah very much so right yeah you know it's the human element that's so brilliantly written with you know the character of barbara you know this woman's menopausal you know she keeps talking having a hot flash having a hot but you know <laughs> you know everything that could be going wrong for this woman is going wrong <laughs> and you know and then the father obviously clearly by the end committing suicide you know the mm. the the fact that she walks out that door at the end in her dressing gown mm. is so symbolic of no matter how you know crap life can be for some people we all have a choice mm -hmm. and it's finding that strength to make that choice mm -hmm. and you know having enough times where you are beat by the brow, you know, under the ground and you just go, I'm out of here, man. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, that, that's what gives, um, gives us hope. It has, it has hope and, you know, that life is far from perfect. And obviously we strive for, for, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of striving for, for perfection and all that mm. stuff. And there's no such thing, you know, it's about yeah. 
you know, you're going to have to roll with the punches because they'll all roll down the hill and get covered in mud. But there is that idea that there'll be light bulbs still there. And it's how yeah. you dust yourself off and get back on, you know. And, um, you know, it's so true. There's a great quote I read recently, and it's such a brilliant line. It's so simple. And it's just, again, another master of the use of language. Maya Angelou, nothing works unless you do. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. You know, what? <laughs> five five words, really? And you're going to do that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just did that. You know. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. it's genius. And that's what, because all we have is language, Joe. You know, that's all we have mm. is language. And love is just language. Love is energy. You know, that's all we have. I can't die mm. for you and you can't die for me if, you know, if you're the love of my life, you know, you can't retract what's happened and what's happened this year has been so heartbreaking to witness, but none of us can change it. All we have is language and all those classic lines, you know, you'll never forget. Um, you know, you'll always, you might forget what people say or do, but you'll never, you know, forget how they make you feel. Again, Maya Angelou, you know, these wonderful women that have been, you know, through the most horrific um, experiences of, of a child as well. You know, she has had horrific, mm -hmm. she was raped as a child, you know, um, had, a, had a young child very young um, and you know really really severe uh, stuff happened to that lady and you know you, you, you're you looking at somebody who changed her life turned it around and became you know an iconic figure in her mm. in not just in, in black American female um, culture and legacy but in her academic work her dance work you know and her writing and again incredible wit you know so in the face of it all you know, mm. she, she was a huge success of herself. So, you know, th this is all we have as language, you know, and power and what it creates in the unification of theatre and what it does and it brings people together. And it's magic, you know, it is magic. I, I mean, I totally agree. And is that why this is your play crush? Because it it sort of hits all of that stuff, like just square in the face. It yeah. feels like a real, it feels like it's all those things you're talking about. And I suppose a philosophy of life that you've built up over your own experiences and what you've seen and witnessed and somehow seems just to be so beautifully articulated in this play. Yeah. Yeah. It really does, you know, um, you know, I was writing down, you know, just from some, some notes about it last night, you know, it's a, to me, it's a clear slice of family war, you know, mm. And the study of human behavior, you know, it's a template for war, you know, the blame, the addiction, the patterns. There's a great line as well. She talks about Barbara when she's talking to her husband, you know, women's war against men that they, you know, he doesn't talk to me. You know, women say, he just never talks to me. And she's a great line. Men always say shit like this as if the past and the future don't exist. You know, <laughs> people's incapability to be in the present you know, mm -hmm. and that to me is what the great Buddhists and the great Zen masters teach. Be in the present, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. life's, that's life's work right there to be in yeah. the present because we're so obsessed with the future and the past and the past can define you and you can let the past define you very, very much if you want, but the real work is being in the present. So, you know, that victim uh, that obviously Violet plays so brilliantly and anytime mm. she strikes out and causes you know, such heartache and vitriolic venom that she spits out at her children during the play, when actually the moment might come for her to own up, she tells the horrific story about her mother in the cowboy boots. Mm. And 
then one sees the damage. So it's understanding the patterns of damage. It's understanding yeah. that. And to me, you know, this is a masterpiece of that behavior and the fact that he's so brilliantly, so brutally and so eloquently, you know, pieces it all together in every line, in every paragraph, in every you know, interaction with characters in this play, you know, to me, it's, it's all there, you know, and it's, it's, you know, it's just, you know, there's nothing that he, that he doesn't really cover, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And in all of that, have you got, is, does, is there a favorite moment or scene um, or interaction that sticks out for you? I mean, obviously the kind of weave of the whole play is extraordinary, but is there anything that, I mean, that, that boot story really sticks out for me as does the, um, you know, dinner, food, obviously major middle scene after after the funeral. But yeah, is, is there a scene, a moment, a line that really pinged out for you, your favourite bit in that play? Oh, I mean, there's so many of them. There's so many of those <laughs> moments. I mean, um, I think it's twi- It's so entwined with the performances that I've seen. Mm. And just when you thought that these performances could not get any more real, I knew after the first performance and I went back again, you know, I brought my mom, I brought my best friend and her boyfriend at the time. who would never been to the theater. Um, you know, I brought another friend who didn't have a particularly healthy relationship with her mother, who, who this character was very similar to her own mother, which is kind of traumatic for her to see. And, wasn't in particularly great shape after the show um you know i think for myself joe the performances were everything but you know when um all the sides of the behavior of the heartbreak of the of the the family the dysfunction the utter pain that they cause you know when amy morton asks her husband you're not coming back to me are you and he goes no you know not now not never and he tells her no it's witnessing that woman she didn't speak she just stood in whatever way amy chose to perform her body at that time it was just you you just seen inside a broken woman's soul it was just palpable the pain just when you thought how can this woman give any more you know it just it was it was it was great, great, great acting and great, great, great art and performance, you know. Um, you know, it, it, it really was one of the most astonishing uh, pieces of theatre I've ever seen. Yeah, and it, it, it's really amazing, actually, in a play. I mean, it's a testament, I think, both to the performer and the writer in a weird way, but uh, in a play that is so well written, has so many amazing lines, the moment of silence is actually the actual killer where you're oh, just like, uh, this broken person is before you. Yeah, because I think it is that, Joe. I think I think what I really took from it was everything that she had experienced growing up. Mm. We never really got to hear, you know, Bill's side of it and what it was he was heartbroken about, or that he did love the woman, or he wouldn't have driven there with her, you know, to support mm-hmm, her and mm-hmm. the baby, the daughter, you know, Jean, you know. But you know, all the stuff that you know he had to deal with as well as the man, and maybe mm. that her behavior was, you know indicative of her mother's behavior you just don't know so basically everything that that she didn't say was said yeah. in that yeah, moment yeah, yeah. you know and that's why sometimes in those moments of silence you know 
I suppose it was a moment where he so brilliantly wrote that silence in the play, which we all must respect as actors, and that's our job as actors. Mm. All our job as an actor is to do is tell the story. Uh-huh. You know, that's all your job is. And, you know, the fact that she stood there in that silence, you know, you needed that breather because all the wonderful writing that Letts had created in that moment was was just laid there on the table for you. Mm. You know, yeah. extraordinary, extraordinary. I'll never forget it. I feel, you know, I'll be forever indebted to um, those actors that I that I was able to see that performance and that we got to hang out and we became friends. And, you know, we used to have drinks in the bar when they had so little time off and they couldn't really stay much later, you know, than mm. needed to get the tube. You know, we'd be off you know, heading into Soho for a night out, all the young ones from, you know, War Horse and having the crack and going to all the late night balloons. You know, these actors were back at home in bed because, you know, they all had to have voices the next day, you know. But yeah. um, it really was the most extraordinary piece of theatre. Eh? Oh, amazing. Well, Brona, look, thank you so much for talking about the play and about your experiences and your career and giving your time over to us today. I, I really appreciate it. It's so amazing to hear you talk about love life theater and everything in between yeah thank you so much for having me i thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed the experience and uh it was a real uh honor to chat with you and to be inspired to read this phenomenal play again yep thank you oh total pleasure thank you and yeah i definitely recommend anyone out there who didn't get to see it please do read it there is a movie which is good but i feel like the 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 play script is is an even more special experience so definitely recommend everyone to have a read and, yeah, it's uh, a wonderful play. I mean, uh, I think Meryl Streep's performance is extraordinary. Mm. Um, I remember um, at the time when the play was on, uh, Emma Thompson came to see uh, War Horse, and I said to Emma, you have to go and see um, Osage County, which she did. And I said, I mean, come on, um, can you not make us into a movie? You've got to, can you not make us into a movie? You've got to, you know, look at these actors. And she agreed it was one of the greatest things she's ever seen. And she says, darling, uh, it's already been commissioned. And Julia Roberts, is, who's a phenomenal actor, stuff, is playing, um, playing, uh, playing Barbara. Know, Barbara and Meryl Streep, who was obviously and always is, you know, a, an iconic actor. <laughs> um, but, you know, we know that uh, the, uh, the play was uh, the real deal. <laughs> sorry Meryl <laughs> and I know she listens she's a big oh, fan God. So text me out. as we speak <laughs> <laughs> look at that phone on silent there Joe <laughs> um, well Brona look, thank you so much um, uh, and too, uh, good luck with the rest of the year uh, you too sweetheart hopefully see you soon I hope so we'll get lost uh... in Soho baby <laughs> <laughs> The champagne's yes. on me. Feel <laughs> yeah. the brassic money, absolutely. Oh yeah, mate, no problem. I'll save some. <laughs> See you soon. God bless. Thanks, Joe. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. If you enjoy this episode of Play Crush, we would really appreciate it if you could rate, review, and subscribe, as it helps other people find the podcast. The Old Vic would like to thank principal partner Royal Bank of Canada and the T.S. Eliot Estate for their support. Sherman Theatre would like to thank the Arts Council Wales and everybody who has supported us through this difficult time. <laughs>